This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, things might sound a little bit different today. I am actually on the road. I've got the portable studio as I am uh, at conferences this week, but we're going to press forward and have a conversation today with Mike Aquilina. I keep wanting to say Dr. Mike Aquilina because you are so (laughs) prolific in your work. Uh, Executive Vice President and Trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology uh, and a widely respected author and lecturer regarding the Church Fathers. You've got a ton of books out there uh, on a couple of different presses. Uh, Our Sunday Visitor has a number of presses. I think there's uh, one or two with Ave Maria Press and then also uh, here with Emmaus Road. One of my favorites is you have probably the perfect book title in hymns through hymns with hymns how the choir i think converted the world and it's fantastic um i've not yet read the book but i i it's on my list and on my bedside table because just from the title alone uh being a choir guy but today we're talking about the book how the fathers read the bible scripture liturgy and the early church uh mike thanks for joining us today hey thanks for having me back tim so let's talk. Uh, th- this this book is kind of an exploration of not just a framework by which the fathers read the church, but an invitation into some very specific fathers uh, and and very specific iterations of how they interpreted. You told me a little bit beforehand, but tell me where did this book come from, and then we're going to jump into the the main premise. Well, you mentioned that I'm um, I, I that. You mentioned that I work with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and I do. I've been with it since since its founding, and I've been involved in the various video programs the, that, that we put out, the video series. Uh, we put out a series on the Bible and the Church Fathers a few years back, and one of the things that, that people came back with um, was the suggestion that we put out a book on the subject of the Bible and the Church Fathers. So Scott Hahn asked me if I would be game for doing that, and I said, sure. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea, especially because there are people out there who want it. So this book is the the product of, um, of people kind of uh, sending the emails and letting us know what they want. Early in the book, you posit, and I would tend to agree with you, that the fathers, when they looked at Scripture, they approached Scripture from a liturgical point of view. And so everything about their study and their exploration of Scripture came from this place of looking at the world sacramentally or liturgically. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we have lost that sensibility. Uh, It's not first nature to us, and perhaps that's because of the amount of literacy that we have, which kind of seems counterintuitive. Uh, But because of our literacy, we tend to approach any kind of reading from a more intellectual place and less a liturgical place. Not to say that liturgy is not ever intellectual, but there is certainly a different sensibility and a different way of of looking at, at the world and at the scripture if we're looking at it for the sake of of knowledge or if we're looking at it from a place of liturgical and spiritual practice. So in given the fact that we do live in this time of of abundance of literacy, what do you see as maybe some things that we can do to help kind of recapture the way that the fathers read and to begin to understand scripture 
in this more liturgical way so that we can recapture and, and maybe rediscover the wisdom of the fathers and to reap the spiritual benefits from their, uh, from their process. Well, I think you got it right. Uh, we are so far removed from the world of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it's hard for us to gain an imaginative entry into that world, technologically, socially, culturally. We are so far removed from them. You know, you mentioned uh, the pew missiles that we can mm-hmm. we can leaf through so that we can read along with with the uh, the the lections as they're presented every every Sunday. Uh, you know, that's 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 one thing. That, that that would have been so alien to the early church and to Israel before then, uh, because most people were illiterate. Most people in the ancient world were illiterate, uh, and they really had no good reason to learn how to read because there was no mechanical reproduction of texts. So texts, documents, books, these were very expensive to own. Very few people could afford to own books. And my, I remember my wife talking about a book she read about the Middle Ages, uh, and it was um, it was describing a wealthy family, and, and one way you knew they were wealthy is because they owned 11 books, <laughs> 11 books. They were fabulously wealthy. Well, look at me, look at yeah. me. <laughs> I'm surrounded by thousands of books in my office, and I am, I am, I'm barely middle class, <laughs> you know. We live in a, in a world that's impossibly rich, in, in, in the view of the ancients, um, we can also access texts on our smartphones. You know, if I if I um, if I use um, if I use the Verbum software, I have access to the Bible in many languages, many editions, many translations. And not only that, I have all these tools for studying the Bible as well. I can get into linguistic tools. You name it. Um, it it's a uh, Again, we have all of these riches that the fathers could only have dreamt about and that the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the Old Testament could could only have dreamt about. Now, now you think about the, the, the texts, the, the documents of the New Testament, the documents of the Old Testament, how were they first received by the people of God? In the Old Testament, we see that. Mm-hmm. We see that because Moses read aloud the, the 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 law he read aloud the documents of the covenant in a in the context of a sacrificial rite okay he read these aloud and then he he sprinkled blood on the people blood from a sacrificial victim and he said behold the blood of the covenant and we see this repeated at the time of Josiah um, the reform of Josiah we see this at the time of um, of uh, of Nehemiah yeah. that that the people are gathered together and the scriptures are read aloud publicly. You get to the New Testament, and it's assumed that that will be the case, right? Our Lord essentially launches his mission in the synagogue in his hometown by reading the scriptures, which everyone expected, and then commenting upon them, essentially giving a little homily afterward. Um, And this is what people expected. They expected to receive the scriptures through the liturgy. Later on in the New Testament, in St. Paul's letters, we find instructions for the reader, okay? Because he assumes that these will be read aloud in the assembly of the church. Same thing happens in the book of Revelation. There are instructions for the lector because, again, it's known, it's assumed that these will be presented uh, in the context of a church service. Um, so so the Old Testament and the New Testament both assume that the the 
the context of the scriptures is liturgy. And so much of the content of scripture is liturgy as well. We could we can go on about um about how the sacraments are presented in the in the New Testament, how the rites of Israel were presented in the old. So it seems to me that as Scott Hahn often points out, that liturgy is the content and the context of, of sacred scripture, both testaments. And and this is something that we can't fathom today. We think of it as a document that's to be studied the way we studied our geography book when we were in school. And that's just not the case. What do we potentially lose out on? Uh, individually, we who go and sit in mass and, and pull out the missile and read, not, not that this is a bad thing. I mean, it's been given to us. It's, it is an option. But what, what do we potentially miss out on when we focus our attention with our eyes on the words rather than just hearing the words as they would have done throughout history. Because some people would say, well, yeah, we are incredibly rich and we should take advantage of that richness and uh, an advantage of the amount of literacy we have uh, to be able to engage more fully, they might say. Um, how, how would you respond to that? What might we miss out on if we engage by reading as as well as hearing, instead of just hearing the scriptures and liturgy. And, you know, I'm someone who takes, who tries to take full advantage of, of all those riches that we've been talking about, all this, all the, the books that are published, um, everything that I, I, I do what I can in order to study the scriptures um, uh, in preparation for the liturgy. I do what I can to kind of figure out what just happened. What did I just hear at the liturgy afterwards? So I look at my life as living off the last mass I attended, living toward the next mass I, I'll attend. So, so these things are, aren't mutually exclusive, but I think the liturgy is a graced moment. It's the time that's designated for the Holy Spirit to meet us through hearing. St. Paul said, faith comes by hearing. And I think that's what he was talking about. He assumed that we would sit there with, with open ears, open mind, open hearts, and we would receive the scriptures that way. Now, when you get into the lives of the fathers, you see that this is what often happened. St. Anthony of Egypt, one of the great movers and shakers of ancient Christianity, often called the father of monasticism because he essentially created this, uh, not out of nothing, but he, he took the, the, uh, the scattered fragments of, um, of, of the monastic life, gathered them together, and modeled a, a way for, for hermits to live and then for communities to build. But his big moment of conversion happened on two consecutive days when he was when he attended the liturgy he went he heard the gospel and it hit him in a particular way i don't even know if anthony could read you know it's it's mm -hmm. doubtful that he could read but he heard the gospel he received it into his heart and it transformed him and then it transformed history through the actions of anthony Something similar happened in the life of St. Augustine. You know, he was transformed when he started going to the cathedral in Milan and just listening to St. Ambrose with that kind of openness. We're talking about one of the most brilliant guys alive at that time, a guy who had a phenomenal library and was 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 uh, was very well read and surrounded himself with with uh, the most brilliant academics of his time and corresponded with others among the most brilliant academics of his time and 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 yet what changed him was attending the liturgy when it was celebrated by saint ambrose and leaving himself open to be changed by by the teaching in ambrose's in ambrose's homily 
I think that there's something to this. You mentioned St. Augustine, who was brilliant, not only in his capacity for thought, uh, and not only in his, his literacy, but in his, the volume of work that he put out uh, as a writer as well. And, and I think that there is a difference in the way we present ourselves when we, when we present ourselves to hear instead of when mm. we present ourselves to read. Because I think that there is a, a, you know, like the flip of a switch of engaging the intellect in a different way. Um, when, when we hear, it is a more receptive thing that when we read, there is an activity to it. There is an action and there, the impetus is then on us to, to process and to figure out and to uh, maybe engage with the text as opposed to being in that receptive place where we are the receivers of the grace that's given and we are on the passive end of that engagement. And there is a time to read, and there's a time to read the scriptures. I'm I'm all about this, but I'm I'm right with you here that I think that in the liturgy, this is our opportunity to put ourselves fully into receptive mode and to let the Holy Spirit point out those things that we hear that maybe we go and we read later, or maybe it reinforces something that we've already read, uh, but to put ourselves in that posture of receiving instead of engaging. Yes, you nailed it. I think that um, that we're we're acclimated to um, to reading through our our years of schooling. Okay, mm-hmm. so we go to thirteen years of schooling in which reading is dominant, uh, and then we go to college or graduate school or whatever, and we do a lot of reading. Uh, then you get into a profession like mine, where what I do for a living is mostly reading, and I'll tell you what. When I go to mass, sometimes I take off my glasses because I don't want to read, okay? I know that I've got to get into a different mode of receptivity. This is different from what I'm doing when I'm at work, when I'm at school. It's, it's of a different order. I, I think that, um, that when, we, when we look at words on a page, we instinctively are studying for the test, it's just been drilled into us for too long. And I'm 58 years old now, so my schooling is, is long in the past. But I do think I do a kind of information gathering that I was taught to do in school. That's what I do. And again, it's what I make my living at. So I, I'm researching when I, when, I look at, um, when I look at words on a page. But that's not the same as having a meditative uh, encounter with Jesus Christ in the scriptures, in the in the words in in the words that are proclaimed uh, in the gospels, the, the and the words that are opened up in the preaching. Again, I think this is the moment when we meet Jesus Christ. This is the moment when the Holy Spirit dominates, and um, and we should just leave ourselves vulnerable to that. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina, Executive Vice President and Trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. We're talking about the book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church, available on Emmaus Road Press. So let's move from from those apostolic fathers that that you start the book with. Um, The next chapter, you get into what you call the apologist and the fighters. Let's talk about a little of how receiving in the liturgy and through those graces that we receive in the sacraments, we are prepared to uh, to give a defense for the faith in a way that is effective and and also 
I feel like so many times apologetics these days leads towards confrontation uh, rather than than simply giving a defense. So let's talk about how approaching scripture like the fathers can prepare us to be better defenders of the faith. What's interesting about um, about the the early fathers is that they do give us models for true apologists, those who mm-hmm. who explain and defend the faith, and and also fighters. Um, uh, you know, the the two names that come readily to mind are Justin Martyr on the one hand and Tertullian on the other. Now, Justin is a very warm figure, right? Very, um, very uh, expansive, very uh, understanding, uh, very approachable, and he knew the culture of uh, pagan antiquity pretty well. He knew the philosophers. He had studied in four different schools of philosophy. He knew it, he knew his stuff, and he knew their stuff. Um, so he could show an appreciation for all of those things, and he could look at them, find what was true in them, and 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 identify that particular thing as a seed of the word. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 he could he and, and he had this great saying at one point. He said, "Everything that's good is ours as Christians. Everything that's good belongs to us." And so he eagerly read the fathers, or he eagerly read the philosophers and the poets and the dramatists, and he he just took from them everything that was true and good and beautiful and claimed it for Jesus Christ. He looked at Socrates as a Mm proto-Christian. So that's Justin. Tertullian, on the other on the other hand, uh, is is the guy who's very pugnacious. He's also a convert to Christianity. He's a lawyer, you know, but he he's he's a prosecutor, really. He's always going after you uh, with the case for the prosecution. Uh, and and uh, he's the guy who gives us lines like, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? As if we now that Jerusalem has ascended, we can dismiss Athens altogether. But Tertullian does this with the best techniques that he learned from Athens, just never acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have both of these men. But what's interesting about them is that the liturgy is at the center of their work. And if you look at at, um, at Tertullian's uh, Apologeticum, and if you look at Justin's two great apologies, his first and second, one addressed to the, to the emperor, the other one addressed to the Roman Senate, uh, what's at the heart of them is the liturgy. Justin describes both a baptismal liturgy and a Eucharistic liturgy. Tertullian describes a Eucharistic liturgy, and, and they describe it in, this, in these beautiful terms. Uh, you know, Justin's is the earlier text, so I'll look at that first. And uh, what's interesting about that is it's a full description of the Mass, one of the very few that we have from the early church, because in general, Christians avoided talking about the rites in public. They, they, they avoided talking with pagans about the central mysteries of the faith. Uh, we call this the discipline of the secret. Justin doesn't observe that. He just tells you this is what happens at the Mass. What's interesting is that it could describe Sunday Mass in my parish, yeah. you know, today in 2022. And when the church put out its catechism in the early 90s, it just lifted that description verbatim from Justin Martyr and plunked it down as the description of how we celebrate the Mass today. Justin mentions there that we read in the context of the Mass the memoirs of the apostles. He also mentions the prophets. You know, he he has a singing hymn, singing psalms. So we can see that scripture was an integral part of worship then. 
Tertullian does the same thing. Uh, what's really wonderful about these descriptions is that both of them center on the mass and both of them show the life of the church as flowing from the mass. Everything that's good in Christian life begins right there, flows outward from there. In both the Apologies of Justin and the, Apologi the Apologeticum of Tertullian, um, we find lists of the charitable works, works that the, the church does. Okay, they visit prisoners. Okay, they they visit those in the mines. Uh, they take care of widows and they take care of orphans. They they take care of the sick and the dying. They bury the dead. They do all of these things, right? But for both men, the context of that list is in their description of the liturgy because they're simply explaining what the church does with the money that it collects right after the readings at mass. Mm -hmm. So so there's this beautiful image of people being inspired by the scriptures to give generously and then being inspired by the scriptures to go out and and do good to 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 exercise charity toward their neighbors in the greco-roman world so yeah this is something uh that begins in the mass it's it's proclaimed and it's heard in the mass it's interpreted in the mass but it's lived in life afterward well, and so right at the beginning of the of our conversation today, you mentioned all the way back into the Old Testament, you see this liturgical sense of of proclamation. We had this, and I'm going to go back to all the way to uh, the conversation that that when Moses was proclaiming the law before then coming and and showing the blood of the sacrifice. This is what we do in mass as well. We have the proclamation, and then we go to and toward that that sacrifice and having that sacrifice then uh, applied to the people in the book you talk a little bit about the the framework of what we're doing what Moses is doing there he's saying okay here's what you're getting yourself into uh, i wonder i wonder if we would hear scripture differently at mass if we approached it in that way here's what i'm getting into through participation in this sacrifice that I'm approaching. Um, yeah. I think oftentimes we read ourselves in the scripture or we hear ourselves in the scripture as the, as the protagonists, as the ones who are um, on the side of God. Uh, and less often do we allow scripture to kind of point to us. And here as we're in the season of Lent is a time that we're supposed to do some self-introspection uh, to allow scripture to point to us and say, listen, this part is outside the covenant and you need to bring that in because we are progressing together toward this communal uh, participation in the sacrifice of the mass. Yes. You know, uh, when you read the accounts of the fathers, uh, they always describe uh, the liturgy in terms of fear, fear of the Lord, awe, but it's nonetheless a, a species of fear. They refer to these dread mysteries, these awful mysteries. Why are these dread mysteries? Why are these awful mysteries? Because you're aware of the terms of the covenant. You're <laughs> aware of, of, of what you're committing to every time you say amen yeah. to one of the prayers in the mass. We should be intensely aware of that because this is what we're going to be held accountable to. Uh, yes, we read these these prayers where, where, where you clearly signed on the dotted line by saying amen, <laughs> you know? How did you uh, follow through on that? Yes, I mean, 
we will be judged by this because we have made the commitment by making the responses at mass. We shouldn't be doing these mindlessly. Um, and I think that the scriptures, as they're read, are, are there to remind us of that, to remind us of that commitment, to remind us that we're accountable and that there are consequences to our actions and consequences to our inaction. It is kind of like human nature, though. You know, I just checked into a hotel last night, and there's all these little things that I'm supposed to initial on and you know read the terms of service and click okay and you just scroll to the end and click the button right where i'm not really paying attention to what it is because i'm assuming that it's going to be kind of uh standard fear but at the same time i think we sometimes we do that with our prayers that we we hear uh god stand up for the oppressed and for the poor and the marginalized and we just kind of scroll to the end and click okay and don't think about our now responsibility in helping to bring that about and to make sure that we're on the right side of that. Um, and and I, that puts it in a different perspective to say, yeah, I'm going to be held accountable. Not only am I asking with the whole church that God do these things, but I'm going to be held accountable for them by, you know, clicking on that dotted line with the amen. Yes. And the fathers had a clear sense of that. And, and even our more recent ancestors, why is it that we're asked to, to put our hand on a Bible in a court of law yeah. and raise the other hand to heaven and, and, and swear an oath that way? Well, because we're, it's assumed in that action is that we know the contents of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We know the terms of this, of this swearing and, uh, and we're okay with that, right? Well, we should be equally okay with um with what with what we're doing what we're saying when we go to mass um and i think that that the lectionary helps us yeah that way because we're not just hearing the preacher's pet verses over and over again we're not just hearing this tiny number of verses that he has reduced christianity to but really over the course of 3 years if we go to weekly mass we're going to hear a, a wide range of the scriptures, a wide range of challenges, and I'd say a representative selection of the scriptures. If we go to daily mass, boy, are we going to get a lot of scripture over the course mm-hmm. of three years of daily readings from both the Old and New Testaments, and always with the Psalms. So these things are going to be imprinted upon us. We should have a clear sense of what we're agreeing to uh, when we choose to be Christian and when we choose to continue in our Christianity. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina, who is the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Learn more about their work over at stpaulcenter.com. That's stpaulcenter.com. The newest book is available on Emmaus Road Press. It's called How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. And when you finish with that book and you decide that you want more good news, Mike has written over 60 books that you can go to learn more about your faith and more about the fathers. Don't go anywhere because there is more to this conversation just on the other side of the break. Uh, But do come and be a part of the ongoing conversation. Share your thoughts with me about this week's episode over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. And when we come back, we're going to have a conversation about typology about reading the New Testament in light of the Old and understanding the Old Testament in light of the New. It's a conversation you want to be a part of. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, here in this season of Lent as we're progressing deeper into the Paschal Mystery, preparing ourselves to receive all that comes at, at Triduum. Man, I just, this is my yearly encouragement. If you've never been to the Triduum Mass, go. All three iterants, uh, iterations of it, you've got a th- Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and they all represent one liturgy. Mm. Uh, and so this is kind of the pinnacle of our faith. And yeah, it's wonderful to go on Easter, but there is something about walking through uh, Good Friday and Holy Saturday that uniquely prepares you for the celebration of Easter. And today we're talking with Dr. Mike Aquilina. I keep saying doctor. I'm going to bestow that upon you with with Mike Aquilina, who is the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, the new book is How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy in the Early Church, available right now on Emmaus Road Press. Um, and in this, you talk about preparing ourselves for that prep for that participation in the sacrifice as well uh through receiving the the words of scripture at the liturgy at the mass just for before we went to break you were talking about uh, receiving the the words of scripture through the lectionary and through the way uh that we hear at mass the words of scripture and i love the lectionary because as we're hearing the old testament and the psalm and the new testament we're given a sense of another way that the fathers read scripture, and that's through the interconnectedness of the Testaments. The church is drawing for us the links that were really kind of pointed out early on by, uh, sometimes by the, the gospel writers or the, the epistle writers, but very often pointed out later by the church fathers through a sense of, oh, hey, here is how you read the New Testament in light of the old, and here's how you read the Old Testament in light of the new making those connections for us in a in a way that that is not immediately obvious to the eye. Yes. Yeah, the church has always assumed that God is the primary author of the Bible, both testaments, and that he was he was always kind of leaving clues all the way through the Old Testament that would that would be disclosed in uh in the fulfillment of the New Testament. What's what's hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Um so so we do see these types types in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ. And that's the way Jesus himself looked at it. He saw himself as the new Moses, right? He saw himself, uh, and uh, St. Paul presented him as the new Adam. So all of these biblical figures find a kind of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They're anticipated in real historical figures earlier on, and, and, and Jesus comes to recapitulate all of these different historical events and, per, and bring them to per, perfection, because he can. He's God incarnate. This is the way he himself read the, the books that we now call the Old Testament. He saw himself there, um, and then he saw his, the fulfillment. Um, but it's the way he taught the apostles to read as well. Um, when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, we we find that he he drew from the law and the prophets and the writings, he all the scripture as he as he showed them how they were fulfilled in himself. Saint Paul and Saint Peter and Saint John in the New Testament 
read the Old Testament the same way, and they see fulfillment in Jesus Christ. St. Peter presents Noah as an anticipation of Christian baptism. Mm -hmm. St. Paul shows the water from the rock as an anticipation of the same. And, and, uh, and also, he, he shows the manna that was given to Israel in the desert as an anticipation of the church's Eucharist. Well, the fathers just kept reading the Bible that way because they saw it as an inexhaustible source of these riches, that, um, that God is an author whose involvement in the text was, was from infinite wisdom. If, if, um, if we continue to see new things in Homer now, after, after uh, going on 3,000 years, we should be able to see so much more in the Bible over time as it's, as it's interpreted through the centuries by the saints. So, so yes, the, this um, typological reading is something that the fathers learned from the apostles, and they continued to teach to, to future generations. It's also something we still imitate today, and it's something that plays out in the structure of the lectionary, mm -hmm. because typically we have an Old Testament reading. Um, on a weekday, we'll have an Old Testament reading, uh, the, the psalm, and then uh, the gospel. On Sundays, we'll sometimes have the Old Testament reading, the psalm, uh, a New Testament reading from the epistles, and then finally the gospel. Um, so, so it shows the, the progression of the idea through time. So one of the things that I'm very interested in personally is coming to a place where I more readily read Scripture through the senses of Scripture, through a typological uh, way of reading. I find it challenging because even as I'm reading through the Liturgy of the Hours, the breviary, reading a lot of Augustine that, that's included there, sometimes the connections that he finds seem really just out of nowhere. I'm like he, he says, well, this is what this really what this really means. This is pointing to this spiritual meaning. And sometimes I think that he made it up. I mean, I know he didn't, right? Uh, but... But I look at that and say, how do you read scripture in that way, looking for those connections and know that you're doing so in a safe way and not just making something up on your own? Uh, the, of course, we can certainly read what the fathers have given us and, and receive that. But how do we then maybe make new connections, but do so from a place of safety, knowing that we're reading with the church? Well, I think the fathers teach us how to read the Bible, and I think that all of us fall into some level of allegorical reading because that's what life application is, mm -hmm. right? We read this story from the gospel about something that happened 2,000 years ago, and we say, hey, I can see how I can make an analogy with my situation that I'm in today. My society is very different. The culture is very different and so on. And yet this applies to me in an analogous way. So I think this is something that we do automatically. Now, some people like Augustine, like Jerome, like Origen, they're geniuses at this. Mm -hmm. And they kind of teach us the possibilities of the method. Now, most of us are just not going to go into that, that level of the, the imaginative flights that they are because we're not the same kind of geniuses, right? Or, or maybe we're not the same kind of saints just yet. We have to go through a lot of purification before we get to that level. I think that it's important for us to, um, to measure what we take from the scripture against what the church teaches us. And it's important for us to measure what we get from the scripture against what the saints have always read in those passages. Uh, one thing I like to do is go through 
this particular series. It's the ancient Christian commentary on, on uh, scripture. And, uh, and, and what that does is go through the Bible verse by verse. And whenever I think that I've landed on some particularly creative reading of a, of, of a verse, I'll look up that verse in there to see how the first seven centuries of Christians interpreted that particular verse. I probably don't want to go through too far afield of that variety of readings that they present. And they do present a variety of readings. But the great thing about Catholicism, the great thing about our tradition, the great thing about belonging to the church is knowing um, that we have a standard, that there's an objective standard, that we can hold ourselves accountable to the, to the tradition. And that means something. It means that the, what the saints really taught, and that's accessible to us. This this is one of the things, not to talk too much about it, one of the things that I love about having the software, the, the Verbum software, yes. is that I can I can pull that up and I can purchase those same books that you've got on your shelf. I can put the, the ancient Christian uh, commentary series from IVP, if you're looking for it. I can put that in the software, and then as I'm reading, I can easily assess yes. what's the range of how the Father's presented these things and and make sure that I am reading that with the, the, the spectrum of the church. My teenage daughter has a great love for sacred scripture. And once she discovered that set, yeah, I would always find these gaps on my, on my <laughs> shelves because anything that, that kind of roused her interest in sacred scripture, she would want to know what have the saints thought about this? And so mm -hmm. it, it, it really is a handy thing. It's, it's really handy if you have it searchable as, as it is on, on the Verbum software. So as you have immersed yourself in the fathers for, for years and years, I would really like to know what is your process, particularly as you are, you talked earlier about viewing life as being li living off the last mass and preparing for the next mass. If we are postulating, which I am, that it is better not to read the scripture in the liturgy, but to hear the scripture in the liturgy, what is your preparation process like as you go toward the next mass to hear those words of scripture? And what is maybe your process of study after the Mass, after you've received those words, uh, to, to further delve into what the Spirit was saying in that, in that liturgy? My big problem is my attention deficit, right? Mm -hmm. My mind is always going, and frankly, I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly workaholic by nature. And so my mind is always kind of gravitating back toward that groove, that mm -hmm. rut, you know, of work. I'm trying to figure out how am I going how am I going to make the next deadline. So for me, the way I prepare for mass is that during my times of prayer, I try to focus on prayer. <laughs> I try to focus on our Lord and get into the habit of prayer, of withdrawing from my work, okay? Disengaging from that intensive preoccupation that I that I have habitually and and preparing for mass that way. If I can do that, then I'm in a better place to receive the sacred scripture. But some of us are so obtuse <laughs> and so set in our ways that we really do have to have disciplines of prayer that, that help us to do that every day. Um, we need to set the time aside for prayer. 
serious mental prayer, you know, so that we're having conversation with our Lord every day. We need to work on our interior life because it's not just the exterior. It's not just study. We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that takes effort. It takes effort to have and sustain a relationship with anybody. Um, I find that, uh, you know, in marriage or in my relationship with my kids, I need to think ahead sometimes about, you know, what am I going to talk with them about when we see each other this afternoon? Because we need, we want to renew the relationship, renew the bond. So I want to have things to say to them. Um, I want to remind myself about the things that are going on in their lives so that I can touch base about those things and be brought up to date. When you're someone who's as habitually distracted by work as I am, you need to make an effort of that for, uh, to, for that, toward mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, you need to prepare for these things, and you need to to make the preparation itself a habit, a habit of prayer. I'm in my spiritual reading this Lent. I'm reading another Emmaus Road title uh, on personal prayer from uh, from Father Boniface Hicks and another Father from both from uh, St. Vincent Archabbey and Latrobe. By the Tom Ackland, yes. Yes. Uh, and it's so encouraging because just in the opening paragraph, they perfectly describe my prayer life, right? Uh, well, I'm going to, oh, I need to sit down and pray. Oh, I can't. Oh, I've, I've got to think of these other things. Oh, I'm so frail. Oh, I'm so distractible. And this idea of that's part of your prayer. Bring that whole self and place it before God. Uh, even in your distractibility, I think so often we think of those those traits, being workaholic, being easily distracted, being e so easily falling into our ruts as something that prevents us from prayer rather mm -hmm. than saying, oh, no, no, this is this is the fuel for my prayer because I'm like, oh, yes. God, see, here I am again. This is my thing again. Uh, and even in that, so long as we keep it returning it back to, to God as the tide comes back to the shore, uh, that that's the key right there. You yeah. know, that's it, the key referring it to God and not just letting it run riot, which is what I tend to do. <laughs> so in that personal prayer time, you, you prepare yourself for mass. You hear the words of scripture. Let's say that in mass, you've heard something particularly profound that has piqued your interest how do you then, what, what is a, a typical way that you would then further delve into that scripture uh, to maybe parse it out some more? Wow. Sometimes the, the a particular sentence will just stay with me and that will become the substance of my prayer. You know, I can think of one instance where one sentence just knocked me out mm -hmm. and it's been a part of my prayer for about a year now every day, you know, that this has come back to my prayer. One sentence from sacred scripture, um, from one of the, the resurrection stories of our Lord. Um, so I think, um, I think that there's a variety of ways it can happen. It can, it can happen uh, the way it happened uh, to St. Anthony. And sometimes I'm convicted the same way. Um, sometimes I'm convicted that I have to say something uh, that I haven't wanted to say or have a difficult conversation. And I come back to my office after mass and I pick up the phone and I make a phone call because I'm convicted by what happens at mass. So sometimes it leads, leads to action. Sometimes it leads to prayer and that prayer can be, can go on for, for well over a year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
We've been talking today with Mike Aquilina, the Executive Vice President and Trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. We're talking about the book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church, but there are so many more books of his. I encourage you to go just look through all of the possibilities. He's published on OSV, Ave Maria Press, and uh, Emmaus Road Press. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks again for having me back. If you missed any part of my conversation with Mike Aquilina or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. He's also been on the show before, and you can go and look through our guest list, click on his name, and find all of the other times he's been on with us and listen to those episodes as well. And if you get to the end of that and you still cannot get enough... Well, there's good news. There is extra content from today's conversation with Mike Aquilina available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air week after week. And in gratitude, we give them extra segments each and every week. Sometimes we have video segments. Most of the times it's just a little bit extra conversation uh, from this same conversation we've been having. If you want to be a part of that or learn more about it, simply go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click on that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. There you can find out all the information, find some of those older segments that are now available and open to the public, and see if that's something that you would be interested in becoming a part of. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, to biblical commentaries, ecclesial documents, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may come from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, 
if someone should rise from the dead. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And in this passage, we see laid out for us in a story that Jesus tells us, uh, we see laid out for us this principle that we were talking about earlier of hearing the words of Scripture and then doing them, That the, the importance of that. And in where we see that is in this story, as he's asking for Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers, to send them back from the dead, to warn the brothers, Abraham's response is, they have Moses and the prophets. Earlier in the show, Mike Aquilina talked about the law and the writings and the prophets. And these are three categories of scripture, uh, like we have in Christian tradition, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's how we break things up. The The Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, is the the law, the writings, and the prophets. So the, actually the word Tanakh, which is the, the name that they give to the scripture, comes from uh, an acronym for the the Torah, the Netavim, and the Ketavim, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so here, as as Jesus is telling this story of Lazarus and and the rich man, Abraham in this story says they have Moses and the prophets. That represents the right, the law, and the prophets. That's hearing the words of Scripture. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And so he's saying scripture read to them in liturgy and the liturgy that they have ought to be enough for them to amend their lives. And this comes back to that point that I brought up earlier as well, that we have to be listening to scripture in that way in the liturgy so that it can speak to us in such a way that we can amend our lives when necessary so that we can hear the, the writings and the prophets and the law and the New Testament and the Gospels and act accordingly in such a way that when our end comes, we'll receive our reward. Our reading from church history today comes from a treatise on John by St. Augustine. The Lord tells us, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In these few words, He gives a command and makes a promise. Let us do what he commands so that we may not blush to covet what he promises and to hear him say on the day of judgment, I laid down certain conditions for obtaining my promises. Have you fulfilled them? If you say, what did you command, Lord our God? He will tell you, I commanded you to follow me. You asked for advice on how to enter into life. What life, if not the life about which it is written, with you is the fountain of life? Let us do now what he commands. Let us follow in the footsteps of the Lord. Let us throw off the chains that prevent us from following him. Who can throw off these shackles without the aid of the one addressed in these words? You have broken my chains. Another psalm says of him, The Lord frees those in chains. The Lord raises up the downcast. Those who have been freed and raised up follow the light. The light they follow speaks to them. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. The Lord gives light to the blind. Brethren, that light shines on us now, for we have had our eyes anointed with the eye salve of faith. His saliva was mixed with earth 
to anoint the man born blind. We are of Adam's stock, blind from our birth. We need him to give us light. He mixed saliva with earth, and so it was prophesied. Truth has sprung up from the earth. He himself has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We shall be in possession of the truth when we see face to face. This is his promise to us. Who would dare to hope something that God in his goodness did not choose to promise or bestow? We shall see face to face, the apostle says. Now I know in part, now obscurely through a mirror, but then face to face. John the Apostle says in one of his letters, Dearly beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed to us what we shall be. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is a great promise. If you love me, follow me. I do love you, you protest, but how do I follow you? If the Lord your God says to you, I am the truth and the life, in your desire for truth, in your love for life, you would certainly ask him to show you the way to reach them. You would say to yourself, truth is a great reality. Life is a great reality. If only it were possible for my soul to find them. That reading comes from a treatise on John by St. Augustine. And here we see a little bit of the way that the, the church fathers approach Scripture, putting these things into direct context for us and calling out these stories from the Old Testament to help us understand the New, calling out these stories from the New Testament to help us see spiritually what it means for us to be in a relationship with Christ today, to follow him even as we are separated by time, to follow after him in a way that will lead us to life everlasting, that will lead us to a life that is full and rich, beginning now and going on into eternity. I want to encourage you, if you have the ability uh, to spend time with the church fathers, uh, we do it a little bit here every week by reading through some of the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, If you have a copy of the Liturgy of the Hours, you can you can go to that, but you can also use iBrevery. You can find divineoffice.org, or uh, you can get a, a broader portion of the Church Fathers, getting the Liturgy of the Hours, but also a lovely collection of the Anthonicene and, and Post-Nicene Fathers on Verbum. Go to verbum.com and look at the various libraries available to help you to begin to read scriptures with the Fathers, with the whole church. And while you're at it, go ahead, go over to Emmaus Road uh, Press and look up this new book by Mike Aquilina. Get a hold of it, read through it to get, again, a a deeper understanding of, and here's the title, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, you can find this episode and all the others over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. You can learn more by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page, uh, and learn more. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace.